the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. I guess it is a very easy win if you don't have to say anything and you already get an applause. <laughs> <laughs> But I guess you would get an even bigger one once folks recognize that we have the pleasure to welcome the one and only Tony Humphreys here. Thank you. Uh, in order to paint the picture, maybe it's time to go back a little bit and go to New York. I'm shocked. <laughs> Great. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> So all I can say is wow. <laughs> What's the wow factor in that record? Uh, well, uh, that's my father. That's my father's band. Uh, and I haven't heard it in ages. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, my father, his name was uh, Rennie Grand. Uh, I used to have a group called El Grand Combo. And they had, one, they had two different ones. And uh, they had an El Grand Combo in New York. And uh, again, that's where I come from. That's my father. He was the band leader, piano player. So he kind of shocked me with that one. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> Can you recall seeing them play? What, do you have a first recollection of seeing the band play? Well, no, I didn't see them play. But I mean, obviously, we had all the singles in the house. You know, I was too young. I mean, they wasn't going to let me go out back then. There, so. was, there was no sneaking in through the back No, door. no, no. Not in my house. <laughs> no. 
um, what pretty, do you say not in your house? Well, there pretty, was order there, right? Pretty strict. Pretty strict. I was, you know, brought up uh, pretty sort of sheltered, uh, Catholic school all the way up to college. So, no. <laughs> so how does that go together, like uh, this really vivid mambo band and then um, the Catholic school at home? Oh, my God. Well, uh, basically like other immigrant families, you know, my parents and grandparents are from South America. They're from Columbia, South America. And they migrated to the States and they went to California. Then they went to Harlem. And then they moved to Brooklyn. And um, basically my father kept doing work in uh, Manhattan while we were in Brooklyn. Uh, and uh, I guess my parents wanted to do the best they felt they could do for me, so my mother was a waitress, and uh, she worked like 15 hours, and uh, she put me in Catholic school, grammar, grammar school, and high school. After that, she was like, that's it. <laughs> You're on your own. <laughs> But um, it was, uh, that's my upbringing. Um, with the Catholic school, were you a choir boy as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, everything. Until <laughs> I got in trouble. But yeah, <laughs> I. Uh, that's why I like background so much. That's why, um, you know, it was a way of keeping me off the streets, too. First, it was Catholic school. And then uh, there was a Baptist church that we used to go to as I became a teenager. And uh, so, again, it's either playing sports or in the choir. So I was pretty, pretty sheltered, I would say. Um, to those of us who that won't really be able to grasp that, what's the difference musically between a Catholic school and oh. a Baptist school? Oh. <laughs> well, it's sort of two extremes. Uh, Catholic choir, it's very, you know, uh, you know, it's very strict. And in a Baptist choir, it's like crazy. <laughs> it's just crazy. Everyone just goes crazy and ad lib for days and one song class 25 minutes you know that's it's just a big difference so i got to see both experience both sides what does the world need to know about birdell's record shop huh birdell's well birdell's was a a, a place uh, that i worked at as a kid uh and um it was a gospel store and uh in the neighborhood and um institution And uh, this guy uh, used to have me doing filing 45s. He would never let me touch albums, but uh, he, uh, he always liked to sell the albums. But actually, as a matter of fact, that's how I stumbled onto a local choir, which was called the Celestial Choir. Funny enough, we might just have that as an audio. Um, shall we play it? Sure, sure. Yeah.
segue. Interesting because uh, once I heard this, it's only like four minutes and change, and uh, 
all I wanted to know was who was the little voice, who's the little girl, a little kid singing, you know, because of course I was young and I wanted to know, you know, so, and um, I remember bringing it over to uh, New Jersey and bringing two copies of the album over. And um, when I brought it over, some of our ending songs at the club, you know, would be these sort of songs. And um, it just took off, you know. And uh, I remember it's uh, Eddie O, Eddie O. Lachlan from uh, Next Plateau, called me up and says, uh, I want you to mix this record. I says, are you sure? I said, what can I do to it? Picked me up, we went out to Long Island, you know, uh, did this mix. It's pretty straight, it was just cleaner, and you could just hear all the instruments and everyone a little bit better than the original album, you know, and um, gave it a little intro and a little break, but kept it the same. So it ended up to be like 5, 5.30, something like that. But um, it took off. It took off. And, uh, How did you go about that? Because, I mean, it was probably pretty hard to track down who that was and getting, like, any tapes of it. Or... Well, that wasn't my job, but, <laughs> I mean, you know, he found them, and uh, he probably spoke to Joe. Because, again, this choir was a choir that traveled to different churches, and sometimes they would change their name per church that they went to. So you'll see their variations. But um, this one is called Celestial Choir. So you said you were working in that store. What were you doing there? Just filing 45s. That was it. But you were already working as a DJ? Mm, not so known. <laughs> Bedroom. So, so those were the things you had in your back stock and that uh, you brought out later when Well as I got the job over in New Jersey, you know, I was and you have to play longer hours. I just tried to bring everything I had, you know. But um between New Jersey and working in that store, there's a couple of years in between, right? Um obviously, yes. Yes, for so, sure. So what time were you working that store? Oh boy, good recall now. Um It was probably after the first year of college, I remember. And um, I started working uh, in the mailroom, I believe, at the New York Daily News. And I think what happened was uh, they went on strike. I was in a union, so obviously, you know, unions have uh, situations. And it was a strike, so that was my, you know, my job. While I was on employment, I was working at Burdell's and getting 50 bucks a month. That was the in between. Who were these people named Mario Rosemont? Uh, oh, Mario Rosemont and uh, his brother, uh, Lionel, was his brother. And that's the uh, makeup of Lai, who did take it back to Zanzibar. So L-I is for Lionel. He lived, he lived in Flatbush, and we met in college. That's where we met and. They used to have student hours uh, on Thursdays, you know, where you could play music while, you know, uh, it's like free hours for students. And we used to bring our equipment and play. And they had the equipment and I had the records. So we used to combine. And, uh, so it was like a school disco, basically. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. But then we started doing our own independent things, you know, and uh, Being mobile and setting up everywhere, and a lot of places were empty, and a lot of places weren't, and you know, it's the whole mobile life. I mean, the mobile life then was a little bit different than I guess it's now. I mean, just looking at this, you packed yeah. a little bit more then. Oh, it was it was physical. Yeah, I mean, to move a whole room 
full of equipment. You can imagine, you know, up and down a brownstone in a basement was, was very difficult. But, you know, we, we wanted to do it. You know, we wanted to play. We wanted to perform. We used to do it out in the park a lot, you know, so it was the thing back then. So you brought the entire kit, like the speakers, the cables. Oh, everything, 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 everything. <laughs> everything. I imagine that was a pretty lucrative operation, actually, because you got all income. Sometimes, sometimes, because obviously, like any other business, you had to rent to get a van. You had to rent, you know, a huge thing to take this around, and you had to have people help you. So, you know, normal business. So there's overhead, is the point, so. And if no one shows up, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? You still have to pay people, so. Well, what's the first time when someone actually hired you to play in an existing space? Existing space. I would say, um, you mean a real paycheck? Oh. <laughs> There was uh, this French uh, restaurant uh, near 40, 52nd Street in Manhattan. It was uh, called the El Morocco. It was called the Zebra Club back then. Decor was nothing but zebra stuff, and uh, what they, was that? They, I mean, the decor, the walls. I mean, everything was just zebra prints all over the places. <laughs> so they put me in the back by the kitchen, and I basically pay, uh, played like dinner, dinner music until they ate for a couple of hours, and then had them dance it off. And that was sort of my first club. Call me a discotte, whatever that means. I don't know, but. Uh, This first, uh, was that one of those made up French sounds? Uh, maybe that's what it said on the check. We're gonna tell you on the stub, that's what it said, you know. And uh, yeah, that was the first, uh, first one. They, how, how was DJing for people having food different than people dancing? Oh, that was madness, it was madness. But you know what? I got into music like um, my idol, you know, it was Quincy Jones, and I used to like open up all the time with Tell Me a Bedtime Story, which is one of my favorite songs that he's done of all times and uh, that whole album. But, you know, I figured it had to be upscale, whatever I played, you know, an expensive little restaurant and uh, did that for like, you know, hour so and a half to two got, hours. Quincy got those upscale sounds? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We could spend two days on him. <laughs> uh, just no one can touch him as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, recommended. That's the cue. <laughs> recommended cue dinner listening for you. <laughs> untouchable, 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 in my in my view. What did you learn there about programming the night? Because I mean, as everyone that goes to bigger dinners knows, you get there, you might be kind of stressed. Everyone kind of like, ah, oh, who are these people on the other side of the table? Then there's an aperitif. Then over the food, they get a little less stressed there might be a drink or another one coming in. And so I guess the mood kind of changes. How did you account for that when you programmed the night? Well, I mean, it's pretty simple. I played quality ballads, instrumentals if I could, um, soft music for like 40 minutes. And then after that, there was a beat to things and they had to do something or leave. <laughs> something. So what, there was dancing in the club as yes, well? Yes, there was. Yes, there was. Yes, yes, yes. What were the clubs like that you went to after you were done there, after your shift has ended? Um, it was pretty much the mobile thing. Um, you got to think eight million people, nine million people, you know, and you got the five boroughs. So it's pretty competitive. 
you know, trying to get a job in, in New York back then or now. Forget it. You know, it's just every project had 400 DJs. So, you know, what, what are you going to do? But um, this is why I feel so lucky in the position that I have now because of a couple of people. You know, uh, I got lucky break, you know. So in terms of like the radio, you know, uh, I met up with Chef Pettibone, who's, you know, everyone knows him from Madonna's fame. And uh, he gave me a break to uh, be on the radio. I take it you did not meet him at Madonna's birthday party. Like, how did no. you get to No, no. <laughs> well, okay, when you're a mobile DJ back then, for you to get music when there was no net or whatever, that you had to prove to these companies that you were worthy of getting free material. So you had to come up with, like... 12 or 13, 14 uh, flyers to prove that there was these events were going to happen. And if you consistently gave that to them, then they said, okay, well, let me know how the record works. So we would do this every week. Uh, they, would have, they would have a mailing list, and then they would have where you would show up every week. And uh, so Prelude, if anyone knows that old label, Prelude Records, uh, where Francois K worked and... Um, Larry Patterson and all these other folks that was one of the stops that we made and that's where I met Chef Pettibone and uh, I had cassettes back then I don't know if people remember what the hell cassettes are but yeah and regular hustling DJ I was like hey man here's my cassette blah 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 yeah this is what I do and that was it I mean I went home for a week all of a sudden he calls me up and go hey this this is fierce man you know I'm starting some, a new job. Someone stiffed me, so you know, do you mind? Uh, you think you can get a couple of these together by tomorrow morning? It's like, all right, fine, I'll do it. I didn't think it was any big deal, you know. Turned out to be a big deal, <laughs> you know. Big deal in one way. Uh, well, I mean, a new radio station was beginning, which was, was. 98.7 Kiss FM. So it used to be a pop station, and they turned into the rival station, and uh, he was the manager, and uh, he had to manage the whole week, and uh, he's, he had a staff of seven or eight people, and he said, hey man, I got stiffed, can you help me out? And I did that, and that, that's it, history, I believe, it was, uh, it was June 16th, 1981, that's it, exactly. So you were on the radio in New York City at what age then? Oh, jeez. Uh, early, I would say 19, 18, 19, something like that. Yeah. How shaky were your hands when you touched a needle? Uh, well, no. Well, basically, it was pre-recorded. So wasn't that bad. I just had to be on time and have it on time. But I was taught, you know, structure. And that's what I always preach about. With anyone who asks me now, how I've lasted this long, you know, there's a programming structure um, uh, balance that I was taught from radio. What sort of structure was that, and how did you apply that later? Well, I went to my boss and I said, look, you know, I want to be on the radio. I said, I want to do a tribute to Philly because I was... Uh, Philly International, you know, fanatic. You know, that's my Bible as far as I'm concerned. Anytime I want to 
reset myself, I go and get a box that I have of Philly International stuff. Um, he says, all right, well, if you want to do this, okay, then you have to do it the way I tell you, which is radio, everyone knows, has A, a category, B category, C, D, recurrence, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to be boring, but there is a structure to radio, okay? He said to me, you can do the same thing when you play at a club. All you do is switch around the records. So you would make sure in an A category, you would, within 50 people, what should I say? People's attention span is like 15 minutes long. Okay, so the most popular thing that you have, you try to repeat it or reach that sort of a level every 15 minutes. Um, and if you rotate it enough, okay, you keep that section of type of people you want to keep. So what I would do is that I would make sure that I would play a familiar song within 15 to 20 minutes. I would play a male song 15 to 20 minutes, a female song. I would play a track. So the same thing that, same way you would handle radio, I was doing it at Zanzibar. And that was the way I kept them there for like seven, eight, nine hours. I mean, I wasn't going to play all the hits in a row. So that was basically the structure. And once you do it, it becomes second nature, you know, and psychologically everyone feels like he's going to play something I like sooner or later, you know. I, I, he is, so I was thinking about leaving, but... I don't want to miss something, you know, so that's basically me all these years. Some of the Philly stuff that you use to reset yourself, do you have some of that on your USBs there? Wow. That could be anything from the catalog. <laughs> I mean, I just love the whole catalog. I mean, there was really nothing really bad there. Um, What makes it so special in your way that you call it your Bible? Because stuff that was I mean I respect Motown obviously but Philly had an equal amount of artists and um, I it hit me one day uh, I was like you know into tracks and stuff you know into the instrumental grooves and used to buy all their stuff but one day it hit me about you know lyrics with them and how powerful the lyrics was and after that I You put that together with the musicianship. I was like, oh my God, this is like crazy. This is like too much, you know? And then I read up on them and they had to go through four or five different departments before one song was released or done. I mean, that's like crazy, you know? So that standard, put it that way, is a serious high standard, high quality standard for me. So even the songs you didn't like was of a certain standard. And to think that, you know, the session players or whatever, I mean, you got like a whole orchestra sitting in there doing all this dance music. <laughs> they don't know what's happening with the music they're doing. They're just jamming for like 10 minutes per song, whether it's a ballad or an up-tempo song was amazing to me, amazing to me. I'm like, these people playing cello and violin and they don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> you know, so that was amazing to me, you know, to, uh, to know It was a serious factory, you know, and um, the balance. I actually got a chance to go to Sigma Sound one time in the studio they had and Joe Tarzia and the whole setup. It was just magical to me. What Philly lyrics are dear to your heart? Oh, hundreds of them. That's too generic. I mean, you know, get to ask me another question. <laughs> I mean, That's just crazy. Always, I mean, I mean it's you know. in... 
when you dive in it's, and that's exactly the, the feeling you have when, when you never really were in touch with something like that and you get yeah. in there and it's like fuck there's so much of it like where do yeah. I start yeah. what's a recommended path for you to go in if someone never heard anything like where should they start oh wow where should they start um, well if you want to be sort of commercial or you know simplistic uh, love train you know people all over the world join hands on a love train, on a love train, you know, and then, you know, read the lyrics and it's pretty deep, you know, so that's a good place to start. And uh, I didn't know the impact they had outside of, you know, the tri-state area, but um, it was pretty powerful to me, you know, pretty powerful. That's what I go back to all the time, all these years. Um, shall we have a little bit of a listen to some early radio? And see how that's played out. I don't know where you get these things from. <laughs> oh, jeez. later right so, uh, yeah. if it's correct it's like the mid 80s like um that's 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 mad <laughs> it's just been a long time uh i mean there's a lot of different things in there that people wouldn't 
would be kind of surprised about to, to see your name attached playing stuff like that now. Well, again, my job was they, when I got the job on KISS, they were the premier hip hop station. Only on the weekends was it, you know, playing stuff that we would play at Zanzibar, or the garage or the loft or something like that. So, you know, <coughs> they, uh, they did very well, you know, and they tapped into the younger market. So that was what was playing in the daytime. So the beginning of a lot of my shows would start off like this. Mm -hmm. So I would, you know, I used to play like Houdini. I used to play a whole lot of different things and then try to mix in slower BPM things like Hit and Run by Lolita Holloway. I mean, it sounds crazy, you know, but playing um, Transuib Express, uh, uh, you know, uh, what else would I play? Um, just slower BPM things, but mix them all up. So it was about having that opportunity of a job and this audience there and then just, just oh, yeah. slang. Oh, yeah. yeah. Listen, I'm forever grateful. Um, I mean, a couple of times I could have gotten canned because, you know, I was trying to get everything in there. And, you know, and he's like, listen, I don't care what's on there. Just make sure the tapes are on time, you know. But uh, it was a great opportunity for me, you know, great opportunity. What was the equipment that you used to record those tapes? Oh, simple. You know, 1500s, you know, I had a Bozak and got into, you know, different things. Actually, I started with a Clubman 2 and 2, which I gave to Timmy Regis for, uh, that was his first mixer. Um, let's see, what else? And I had a Technique reel, loop to loop, 1500, uh, 1506. Um, that was basically it, you know, when he, uh, I think what happened was, um, after the second strike at the New York Daily News, um, they basically said, uh, you have a choice, either you take a little reduction in pay or you can take your severance pay and go. And I took my severance pay and bought my reel of reels and from there. That's where everything grew in radio. And then you could concentrate fully on the radio? Yeah, that was it. And did you, through the radio, get more club work as well? Not really, at first. Again, it was a new thing, these mix shows on the radio. I mean, it's kind of boring now, but I mean, back then it was a big thing, you know, to hear anything other than the top 10 stuff, you know. So, you know, you're talking about early 80s. I mean, it's a long time ago. You talked about record pools earlier. Um, what do we need to know about this woman, uh, Judith Weinstein? Oh, she is. She's the queen. <laughs> she's she's uh, she's no joke. Um, she had, if not the best record pool in New York, uh, cream of the crop from all types, and uh, she's just the best. I can go on all day, but you know. Yes, five minutes. I'm sorry, no. <laughs> no, I mean, because it has me thinking about, you know, right before Def Mix happened and, you know, when I first got there and meeting Morales and meeting all the other star DJs there. Um, very difficult to get in. I was actually in another record pool before then called Shore Record Pool in the, in the Bronx, Bobby Davis. But um, it's the tops. She's the tops. 
just to understand a little bit better, what would a record pool be? And when when you well, say it was it, basically like a one stop, basically you went as I guess some stores do now, and they basically uh, the labels would give all the free product to one place to get TJ's feedback, and say there would be like seventy five or a hundred records, you know, in a bin or a slot for you. So I was like slot number seventy four or something, and I would go every week. And pick up these records, but I, but you had to fill out the information. If you did not fill out what you thought and what happened with these records, then you would you'd be in trouble. So, but um, that was basically it. It was like a one stop that you paid a monthly uh, fee for, you know, like fifty bucks or something. And uh, it was wonderful, actually. It was wonderful. How important was that as a social spot where you met other people? Or I mean, uh, I'm a little. There's a good chance that due to overlap, you might go pick up your records while someone else is there picking up the records as well. And exactly. So there were two things to reiterate again that were going on at the time. You had the street thing where you went to the labels directly, and then you also had the record pools. So a lot of people used to say, Tony has these records that no one else has. I was just getting them from different sources. So if I have the record pool, if I have the label in the mail, if I have... Uh, Uh, well, two different stores. I had Moving Records in New Jersey. People had Vinyl Mania. Larry Levan had Vinyl Mania in New York. Um, I just had records coming from all over the place, you know, seven or eight different ways. And uh, I just had to go through it and pick out the best stuff. Who's this Larry Levan guy that you talk about? There? Larry Levan. <laughs> God. God. I don't know where to start. Um... The way he handled a, a, a super club, I should call it, uh, every week, it was just intriguing to me. How can this man play so long? You know, you'd come in there at one in the morning and he's still playing the next day. You know, it was like quarter to one, two o'clock, he's still going. I was like, oh my God, how does he do this? And uh, that became sort of my thing. I wanted to be able to learn how to play for a long time long stretch of time and uh, when I got to Zanzibar actually you know sort of gave them an ultimatum because I was kind of backing them up going there and doing my little bits here and there and I said look there are two of you guys here there are three nights if you don't let me try out a Wednesday I'm not coming back really bold <laughs> but I got lucky and they gave me the Wednesday nights so basically the whole thing about I learned from Larry Levan is to be able to play the equivalent of three sets. That's why I like to play for a long time. That's why they say the longer Tony plays, the better he sounds. It's just a habit that I've never been able to get rid of. You know, basically, uh, I would come in after doing radio one o'clock to like three o'clock. Okay, that'll be like one set. And then we would have a PA. And then after the PA, four, three, thirty, four o'clock, it would go to seven or eight in the morning. And then after seven, eight in the morning, then there was the last one, which was like the real one. You couldn't play any B records or no BS. I don't want to curse, you know, but you couldn't play no, you had to play the real deal then. And What was the real deal? The real, real deal record? was no trials. I mean, you had to play the best stuff you had. Old or new, it wasn't too many new things played unless it was really hot. So, um, you know, Those people were, the last set people were really serious. 
You have any any last set records on there? Oh, tons. Huh? Um, okay, let's see. There goes uh, closing records, I guess. Fuck. 
So you said you played on a Wednesday night, and this yes. was the first set sort of record? No, actually, this was last set, you know, where the either commercial folks or the people don't, the core people, this is what you played for the core people. They so want a certain standard, you know, of whatever you were playing. Uh, and uh, this is what they expected. So if you play anything that was, you know, ho-hum, they'd sit down and say, you got to go. So. And that's on pretty pressurous. Huh? On a Thursday morning then. Yeah, Thursday morning. So you can imagine those that got to go to work is like, you better play some, you know what I mean. <laughs> you better play some <laughs> before I walk out of here. Don't play no. You know, so I, people would go straight back to work? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. So what is this place that you call, are playing there? I mean, it's now we're in Jersey, right? I'm sorry? Now we move yes. up to Jersey. Yes. So Jersey is a bit alien from, for someone from Brooklyn. Yes. Yes. So. Well, uh, it was shocking for me, but I tried to keep it quiet. <laughs> shocking in which way? Uh, because um, I wouldn't have believed there would be a club with a sound system that close to the Paradise Garage uh, in New Jersey. You know, I just didn't expect it. And uh, I mean, it's only, I guess, by air distance, five miles at most. Yeah, I mean, you go through tunnels, but again, it's a different state, you know, and um, I wasn't used to commuting to New Jersey. You know, it was big enough, you know, but um, when I got there, I said, I don't into this said same setup same speakers it was just a smaller place I was like I wonder how many people know about this place I said I hope nobody finds out about this place <laughs> and since you know everyone wanted to play the Paradise Garage obviously as big as it was I said you know what I'm not even going to try to play the Paradise Garage I never got a chance to play it I said this is going to be my Paradise Garage right here and that's what I tried to do What was so special about the sound setup in both places? Richard Long system. Oh, man. Jeez. Mid-bass. It was What really mid clear, bass? but mid-bass. Mid um, I mean, at different stacks. I don't want to get into technical stuff, but the but difference was, was you have sub, which you feel the vibration, of course, and you have full range. But in between the full range and the sub, there was a punch that you got from these sound systems. Serious punch. I mean, you felt it. And um, that was the difference. The, the mid-bass was... The EQ of the mid-bass... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm reminiscing, sorry. I mean, very few uh, sound systems were like that. You know, I remember... Uh, I mean, there's some great sound systems now, and uh, you know, but... Um, Remember, like the first couple of years in ministry, uh, first few years of ministry. Uh, it's, it's different. Let's stay in Jersey, okay? <laughs> But um, yeah, we'll that, get to that, London in a yeah, second, that, that 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 Zanzibar system was. Well, imagine you've heard or read about the sound system in the garage. Imagine that in a smaller room or a smaller area. So that's why it was that much more powerful. You were so, uh, are rumored to have been um, a visitor at the loft as well. Yes. How would that sound system differ? 
The loft was pristine. It, it was. It was maybe the way for me to explain the loft was like when I first walked in there. It was like having headphones on. Okay, and you just stood there and you just felt like you had headphones on, and you just stood in the middle of the floor and said, "Wow, this sounds great." sounds great every record sounds great i don't believe every record sounds great no matter what it is you know so it wasn't overpowering it wasn't a whole bunch of sub it wasn't a whole bunch of you know mid bass it wasn't a whole bunch of anything it was just clean 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 headphones that's how that's my description for today <laughs> Yeah, I guess the the guy that built it um uses likes to use the word terrific a lot so <laughs> Yeah, the, the, well, I mean, the clips horns, man, and it, it, he had an amp for every set of speakers. I mean, that's just unheard of, an amp for every set of speakers. I was like, damn, I used to go in the meters would move like, didn't even reach one. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is really clean, really clean. Is this something like a too clean sound to no. you? No, no. I mean, if you can play something at not a very loud volume and actually talk over it, and it still sounds good, that's, that's pristine to me. That's serious. <laughs> it's and, got me um, reminiscing here. How, how did you adapt what you were playing to what you were doing on the radio to having this, which has obviously very different sonics, compared to what you played at the club, especially with a powerful system like well, that? I wore two different sort of mental hats every week. In other words, I had to try to condense 30 or 40 records you know, into an hour and a half every time I was on the radio. It was like almost like a medley. But when I got to the club, I had to stretch them out. So every day I had to go through this change you know, of half the day doing a show, getting as many records in, and then trying to play for three sets. <laughs> so it was an exercise, a mental exercise that whew, drove me crazy for a little while. Around the, I almost lost it near the beginning of the 90s after doing it so long, but I survived. <laughs> Any survival? Tricks, uh, tricks and tips for people that feel like it's getting too much now and then? No. No. <laughs> Be the wrong person to yeah. answer that question. Um, when, you, when you listen to a lot of the records that were big at that club, um, you always realize that there's a very particular way the bass is programmed and yeah. how it's played, and there's a very different qual uh, particular quality to it. How would you describe that? I really don't know how to answer that. I mean, certain records sound great on certain sound systems. Um, just about everything sounded good at Zanzibar. I know it sounds like he's just patting himself on the back, but I mean, you know, 9,000 watts, low ceiling, rich and long sound system. I mean, what you could play Cotton Comes to Harlem, it'll sound good. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You know, very fortunate for that. 
probably to get a bit of an idea of what music sounded around there, um, even though this is the radio because that's better documented. But um, I don't guess forget the radio also had compression on it. I mean, they spent like three million, you know, <laughs> these compressors to make sure that. You know, which also helped a lot of the mixes that I did because it will bring out the middle. So I had to learn a different style when I was doing mix shows on the radio. That was another thing I had to learn, which was shadowing or overlaying, okay? Which is basically, of course, playing two records at the same time. But uh, let's say if you had a record and it was on 10, okay, then you didn't want to reach seven or eight it would sound horrible on the radio. So I had to learn how to play with the record I was bringing in at around four or five. And with the mixer and the compression of radio, I learned how to keep it two and a half numbers apart. That way you heard both records while it was happening. So if you get any older mix shows or whatever of mine and you were able to hear them, the distance was a lot further than, than normal. You know, because the compression would push out the mid-range and pull up the mid-range during the mixes, you know, and keep the sort of bass and highs down. So um, that was something I had to learn how to do. This is a perfect example of what I was talking about. Um, whereas I'm telling you, I don't remember exactly when I did this, what year it was, but I'm saying the overlay that you're hearing, I'm telling you in terms of numbers or positions on a mixer, there are three numbers, three positions apart. That's the only way it would be clear enough for you to hear the sample. In other words, just hear the music, then you hear the female in the back. Oh, well, I'm telling you where that record is while they're both playing at least three numbers apart, or else it would sound horrible on the radio. So that's a good example. That's why, you know, I had to do that. And, and again, when I try to, you know, teach certain people, when you're, when you're bringing in another record, the kick when, once you feel the two kick drums volume-wise are starting to match each other, that's when you stop. You stay right before, you do not try to match them volume-wise, you just stay right underneath so it sounds like one all the time. It was better for radio and it sounds cleaner that way. It's not like today where everyone takes off the bass and you know, you're left with one. I mean, everything was up back then. And uh, again, the technique was two and a half to three numbers apart and keeping the oncoming kick just a hair lower than the one that's on. That's that, what you hear. And how would you do the curves of changing them between? Well, basically what would happen is if you, if you have, if you put it in measure, 
Actually, what when I actually did a mix was really short. It was the last minute and a half where they would happen by themselves anyway. As one was emptying out, the other one would be filling up with tracks. And I just held it there. And as it got empty, all I did was... But you had to have the balance. So I'm staying in this position all this time for like three, four minutes and just letting it ride. by itself.
Wow, memories. It reminds me of uh, God, God, memories. Anyway, uh, another thing I learned too was the slower that you played things on radio, the better it sounded, you know, to keep the BPMs low, uh, slow, sorry. Um, the faster it was, it, it just didn't come out right. So they used to call me the 118 man. I used to, <laughs> I used to bring everything down to 120 or 118, you know, and just ride things. And uh, I guess it turned out good for radio. Which is considerably slow, but at the same time, there's still a very thriving energy in it. Yeah. How can you achieve that thriving energy? Because I guess that's what a lot of people struggling in their productions of like still getting the feel that it, no matter how slow it is, it still pushes you forward. Well, all the energy, whether it's made at 125 or 127, is just, listen, I mean, I remember playing, I used to do crazy things like, Breaking uh, Plastic Dreams. I mean, you know how fast that was. And I was playing it at 118. And people were losing their mind. And I was like, hey, it's about the organ solo, man. I don't care about all this other stuff. It's about the organ solo. You know, church boy. You know, so I, I hear a solo. I'm playing it. You know, I'm a solo fanatic. I'm, you got it on there somewhere? No, no, I don't want to play Plastic Dreams now, man. <laughs> I, don't know. I think everyone's tired of that song. But, you know, that was... The whole thing about tempo, whatever I had, I would try to slow it down, slow it down. Minus two, minus two, minus three. That's a habit from back then. It just sounded better on radio to me. So with the slowing down and the tracks being kind of long as well, yep. um, patience is a virtue. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, they, again, they like the long mixes because you never know what could happen. Um, you know, how far out do you plan your playing? I mean, it's a bit like playing chess, I guess. And like, oh, do you know, like, oh, this is the next one I'm playing, or do you know, like, oh, those are the three, five. Well, this is where I want to be. And like, how five. I had it was, I mean, I would have uh, a vocal stack of records. I would have a stack of records that were tracks or instrumentals. Okay, and my theory was always to use the track to play a vocal song. And that's how I started utilizing all the Chicago stuff in the first place. So when I started getting Virgo and all the stuff on the tracks label and DJ International stuff, they were like bridge records to me, okay? And so I would go from, I don't know, anything from Stevie or Aretha to a track, and then I will play another song, and then another track, and another song. And by the end of the night, you know, it's like 50-50. And uh, you got them all in, you know. There was room for new things, and you, it was easy to overlay that way, you know. It's a lot easier, especially when you had to try to play uh, live stuff. So it was easier to use tracks, and that's how I got them in. Oh, I'm afraid of this. Okay, I see that. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Can we get some video? Oh, no. Yeah, because we've been talking a bit, but sorry, this is really bad resolution, but it... It's not my resolution, but go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> it's from that video, I think, with Abby in it, yeah. How's that? Sorry for the bad 
YouTube DJing. Um, so back to this. Um, 
at 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> what a flashback. <laughs> oh my God. I'm here. <laughs> I mean, there's a ton of stuff in there. Wow. <laughs> What's the first thing that is Comes back to my mind. Here? I'm thinking the lights are on. It's 11.30 in the morning and these people won't go home. <laughs> I'm like, I got a show to do. <laughs> oh, man. But it was fun times. It was fun times. But also it was a nucleus for other people to come out. I mean, you hear Pal Joey's of people dancing there. You hear Roger Astor's On the Ground Solution, love dancing in there and stuff. I mean, the, um, the place. Well, think about it. I'm, I was a New Yorker that went over to New Jersey, and I knew that, you know, they would rather have somebody from New Jersey playing there. So my whole thing was to take care of all the artists in New Jersey that I could take care of. You know what I mean? To, you know, sort of keep keep it down and um, I did my best you know whatever came across that was decent enough I tried to take care of all the Jersey clicks there were like seven or eight of them you know smack plays I mean we can go down the line all of them and uh, I did my best to showcase them all um, 
as we had that seminar one time, uh, I think it was Jersey Jams. Uh, so um, I figured I'd keep down the animosity if I took care of the home folks, you know, <laughs> and I did, you know, did my best with that. And I mean, a lot of those home folks had some global success as well as you. And then um, all of a sudden these English people got interested. And um, can you recall playing in England for the first time? Oh, man. That was culture shock to me. In which way? Because, uh, reiterating what I said about the style, playing, you know, 118, 120, you know, radio, soulful stuff from, you know, New Jersey, blah, 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 blah. Um, I went over to England, it was another level altogether. I mean, they were up here. And they started up there, and they stayed up there, and they did not want to come down. If you came down, you knew within one record. So I had to learn how to peak all the time. That was, like, strange for me. I mean, I would peak maybe three or four times a night. If you have three sets, you would peak three times, and then, you know, be over. But to start off at, like... 1.30 and kind of like stay up there was like a new thing for me. I was like, shit, 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 shit. I was like, okay, I got to find some other records here. <laughs> There was no room for like, you know, they didn't like sleaze records or, you know, slower BPM stuff. It just They weren't having it. How were the scenes at a club like High and Hope or Shoom different compared to... Uh, well, okay, difference. Uh, again, I did Shoom and I basically played, like I played at Zanzibar and I was shocked. They were receptive and I was really shocked about that. Um, again, you're coming from a club you do every week, three times a week. It's predominantly, you know, black, Puerto Rican, gay or whatever, you know, and then you walk in and here's this big, you know, audience more mixed you know more other folks and they were just as energetic as Zanzibar I was like oh my god is this what the rest of the world's like so I went back you know to the core people I said you all have no idea what's going on outside of this place <laughs> and they said ah oh, you're just talking because you got a chance to travel ah you talking shit I said okay so I asked Danny Rampling and Jenny, I said, look, I don't want to get paid. I want to show these folks what I experienced. And I took like 10, 11, 12 people from the club and went the second time and let them experience what England was about. And after they came back, they didn't bother me anymore. <laughs> they were like, you can play whatever you want, man. <laughs> so um, it, was, it was a great experience. I mean, it really was. Um, again, you know, in places like ministry or whatever, which is the garage, basically, to me. Energy, and had to play the same long, uh, long hours. It was, it was really, I was lucky. I was lucky. You did more of those cultural exchange programs, and you also took uh, up in Rimini, I suppose, right? How Rimini, was Rimini was on the way home. Rimini was, was uh, another, by chance, sort of thing. I had finished my stint at ministry and I was ready to go home and uh, they started this night in Italy which was for the workers of the other clubs 
which is was kind of different and strange. You know what I mean? There was usually isn't a nightclub where all the you know employees go hang out. So they started this Monday night thing and said, "Do you want to do it?" And I was like, "No, man, I want to go home." He's like, "No, nah, man, it's on a Monday, man. Don't worry about it." home you know okay please try it so you know i went there on a monday turned out to be cool and after the second week i flew in from new jersey for 10 weeks in a row every sunday and did the monday and came back home and that that was that place called echoes in richoni and uh they used to call it magic mondays or something like that but uh yeah so, were you were you getting away with the same kind of stuff that you played at the other venues? Uh, I was playing whatever I wanted because I assume I was playing for adults or not even adults, but you know, for employees. You know, didn't have to really cater to any particular sort of genre or something. In this little clip, there was also mentioned that you had held down three key positions: the radio. Yeah. The club yes. and the remixing. Yes, yes. That, I, that's why a lot of people said, how come you weren't remixing anymore? You know, you were just doing, you know, the radio thing or I did the label thing. I said to myself after like 92, I wasn't going to do that anymore. It was just too much. I was just about burnt out. I remember coming here, as a matter of fact. I forgot, where, where was it that we did? I don't know, it wasn't gold, maybe it was yellow or something. But I remember I came here with Sable. Uh, it was gold. Gold was a bad club. Oh, man, talk about sound system. <laughs> Sorry, I'm reminiscing the stacks they had. I mean, the bass was so powerful in that place. I don't mean to change the subject, but they had slides and the slides kept moving by themselves all the way down. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I couldn't play with the bass fully. It was always like at three or four and it just kept moving by itself. I was like, man, I mean, they had stacks, the whole back wall. It was just like stacks. I was like, shit. It's not the garage was Zanzibar, but it was a serious punch anyway. And they made me play till like 11 the next morning. We'll forget that. I was like, back pain, back pain, <laughs> you know, but loved it, though, loved it, though. But, um, yeah, at that that time, you know, to do radio, studio, and nightclub and be in a relationship was just a bit much for me. I, I just promised myself I'd never do it again. It's too much for me. Maybe somebody else can do it, but it's too much. Even though you have retired from the game, maybe there's some valuable lessons that you can teach to folks who are still remixing and the way you approach something. Oh, there's just got to be a balance to things, I would say, and don't let the business force you into something you don't want to do. Go at your own pace, man, you know? That's the best advice I can give you. Or, you know, you'll be sucked up easily. You know, when's the next record? When's the next show? Come to my club. I mean, you forget it. And then they'll be on to the next person. So there's, there's, there's got to be a balance, man. So do you keep um, set breaks that you set at the beginning of the year and go like, okay, this part of the year, I'm not going to go and travel? Or like, how do you no, make no, sure you no, say I no? Just, I just no, no, I just do less. That's all. I do less. You know, it, 
my motto is, if it's a good show, they'll remember you. That's the whole thing. You know, you can do 20 shows and they think you suck. I mean, so, you know, and that money comes and it goes. So just do a good show. Like if I'm going to do, I'd rather plan for that show and make sure it's executed. And I played the most soulful stuff I had on me for that particular gig. And I'm happy. I'm happy. That's a good place to be. Um, when you took your folks, or around the time that you took your uh, people from the club over to England instead of getting paid, um, mm. maybe around that time you were still remixing, and maybe we could use that a little bit to showcase your approach to how you were going about that. <laughs> God, I haven't heard these things in years, man. so church man it's so it's, it's like church i mean it's 12 this is it's ca catholic church though <laughs> that's not catholic well that's true feels that way
So you're basically using a band of English ravers and take them from like the sample that they used, which was a 12th century church song, over to Baptist church and then over to Hendrix, all, and all on a house beat, right? Yes, yes. The sun's rising, the beloved. Man, that's, that's some time ago. Wow. It's great, it's great. <laughs> Memories. You're pulling them out, man. I don't, know where, I don't know where you're pulling them from, but you're getting them. Jeez. Would you mind sharing some of them? What's next? <laughs> <laughs> well, we got some, but maybe there's, there's a memory here that you like to share. No, I mean, I was just really glad to do, you know, that group. I mean, they were, I just loved them back then, so. And um, I used uh, DJ Tony Venardo uh, to do, like, a lot of the programming stuff, and he's my cousin Andre LaSalle, who's a guitarist. You know, he's a Hendrix fanatic. I'm always trying to get him to play like Ernie Isley <laughs> from the Isley Brothers, but uh, but uh, you know, just wanted to be a little different and fit them in. But thank you for playing that one. It's been a long time. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you here. Wow. But um, I don't even remember what year that was. 90. 90? 90, 91, something like wow. that. Um, the mix is called Zanzibar Has Risen. Obviously, it's a reference to the club, but um, what we haven't talked well, about is... Well, the sun's the rising, so that's why I said Zanzibar Has Risen. But go ahead. But um, the name Zanzibar as such is... I mean, it, it's not exactly Brick City. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well... And we saw some Afrocentricity symbols in the little video clip as well. It was a thing at the time to think, like, hang on, here in an urban environment, like, what, where is our African heritage? Oh, the theme that they started with? Well, this was before me. <coughs> you know, um, the whole theme that they had with the tigers and everything. This was late 70s before I got there. Again, I'm coming from Brooklyn after the fact. So um, I can't really... Uh, really speak on that but all I wanted to do was to make sure that you know I carried on what the guys before me had done because they were they were great I learned a lot from those guys you know I wasn't supposed to have Ooh, that job those guys actually because that's oh. stories in itself right. again you know when you're in New York City you travel you go to different clubs blah 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 and better days to see T. Scott you know, T. Scott, uh, he was great with the delays. Uh, he was a great overlayer. He's the first one I saw that would use the reel to reel. We used to call it a slap in the studio, you know, for vocals. And he was great at that. Um, he also, I learned from him not to be a snob about radio tunes. Because when you're, you know, back in the day, you know, People will say, um, oh, I wouldn't play that because it's on the radio. It's too commercial, blah, blah, blah. Stay away from that. You know what I mean? Oh, man, you're a commercial. You know, you're supposed to stay underground. Well, I went to listen to T. Scott in Better Days, and he was playing commercial stuff and other stuff. And I was like, if this man can do this, then I can do it. Of course, you can get away with it on a Saturday night. But um, I learned to be able to infuse a couple of commercial things. And I thought in my head, you know, if you section off people that you're trying to entertain, 
there are going to be a section of people who want to hear something familiar that's from the radio. So what's five minutes of your time just to, you know, make them happy, you know, and that's something that I learned from him because before then I was like, if it wasn't underground, I mean, it had to be unknown. You know, if it was known, I wouldn't play it. I wouldn't play it. You know, you, whatever. But uh, he changed my mind about that. And um, the other person was uh, Larry Patterson, which people know about. He said, he gave me my shot. And what I learned from him was, he used to beat my head all the time. If you're going to play a song, you know, play a song with good lyrics that mean something to someone. Don't play any BS lyrics. Uh, don't mess with people's intelligence like that. You're in a powerful position. Play something that would mean something to somebody. Or don't play it at all. And I kind of stuck to that. Apparently, that stuck with other people. And um, here's someone that mentioned you a bit in this song. Thank you. 
<laughs> I think first you need to tell us a little bit about the young cat that is actually on that record. Oh, Roman Anthony? Yeah. Oh, Roman Anthony, he was, he was great. He was really great. Um, he used to sort of say he was a Prince clone, you know, in, in, in a great sort of way. You know what I mean? The feel that he had and, and his, 
the musicianship. I mean, he can really play, you know, a lot of the rock guitar stuff that he had. And he got into the church stuff a lot, you know, with me, you know, which is, a, again, a strange combination, but that's what you hear. And um, it's a shame he's gone, but he was, uh, he was a special person for sure. Kind of missed that sort of prince, princeish sort of vocals, you know, and edge that he had. All right, Roman. <laughs> um, again, that track was like almost a DJ set of 10 minutes inside one track. There were like four, I want to say four sections in it. And especially the last section kind of gave birth to an entire new genre as well. Really? Like, I mean, what like kids in the UK and were me? going like, oh, we kind of like the harshness of those beats mm. and sped them up a little bit. And then we're like, well, because it was faster, call it Speed Garage then. Ah, and, okay. Um, and I mean, other things like that you played as well, like Rose and again, Blades. it's yeah. it's underneath a sort of gospely sort of theme, you know, fall from grace, blah 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 blah. Again, it ties in the religious stuff. I didn't realize it, but I'm realizing it now. All these songs you're playing, they got sort of that feel to it, you know. So I'm being exposed. Oh God! All right, <laughs> but it's. It's cool though. That's where I come from. I can't uh, can't shed that. But um, there were rumors that when that happened, when they start speeding the records up, you stopped playing the actual records that oh, they were using. God, oh, you have to bring that up, man. Do you really have to bring that up? Okay. Well, <laughs> all right, all right. Let me let me get it over with. Basically, when Speed Garage was beginning, I didn't realize that it was a revolt, you know, a British revolt against, you know, the garage stuff coming from the U.S. And they basically wanted to do their own thing. And they basically started using the effect that Todd Edwards from New Jersey was doing, tweaking vocals, okay? And once they started tweaking vocals, like of major artists, you know, like Chaka or somebody like that, I said to myself, you know... I can't play these sort of tunes because I actually see these people. Chaka Khan performed at my club. Lolita performed at my club. I see them. I've been in the dressing room with them. You know, this sort of a relationship. So I was thinking, what would they say if they said, Tony, what are you doing playing this sort of stuff? Are you kidding me? You know, sort of a gimmick sort of thing. So when I first went over, not knowing how big this phenomenon was, uh, I actually went on, I think it was Kiss 100 or something like that, and I actually said, you know, I don't really think I can support this sort of sort of genre. And after that, I was on the front page of all these magazines saying, Tony Humphreys will not play any of this sort of stuff, and, you know, that's what happened. But that was my whole thing. It wasn't, it was, I felt I had to face some of these artists again. And I didn't want to face them and have them question me as to why would I play stuff of theirs like that. So that's the gist of the whole thing. But maybe it was never intended as a revolt in the first place. Maybe it was more an homage and they were just aggy, aggy young kids that just wanted this stuff a little faster. Oh, I really don't know. That's what I was told later on. I was told that, you know, enough of this U.S. garage stuff, we're going to do our own, you know, and... Nothing wrong with that. 
Because, I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of the folks in there would be, like, the deepest aficionados for mm-hmm. the music you guys were mm-hmm. doing. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think it was ever intended as a revolt. It was more like... Well, good. I'm glad. Like, but maybe so. I heard wrong. <laughs> but that's... Well, well, good. I got... I stand corrected. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Peace. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Religious, man. Yeah, I don't want no problems. No, but that, that's exactly what I'm saying. I don't think there ever was a fight. I think okay. there was a lot of the whole genre was born out of a love for okay. what you guys were doing. Okay. And um, yeah. All right. So maybe it's it's good to be able to set the record straight. Okay. Good. It's out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I guess we want to take some questions here as well. So, um, seeing that the battery is not working though <laughs> anymore, um, there's one little thing that a bunch of nerds always were wondering about, but the battery might be dead, so we can't play you and ask you. We'll have to do that another time. You had a question. Uh, is there a mic somewhere? Yeah. Oh, there, there is one. Take mine. Hi. Oh, hi. Is it on? Can you hear me? Hi. Thanks for coming and talking to us. Um, I was wondering, you touched on this a little bit, but uh, if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between the Jersey sound and the Chicago sound, um, and maybe even in, in the context of um, the British sound being influenced by New Jersey, you know, what over, over the years, was there sort of cross-influencing going on between Chicago and New Jersey? Um, was it wider than that? You know, were you guys talking? Were these clicks? It's, it's funny. We, I was playing a lot of their music, and I knew their names from the records. I really didn't know them personally. It wasn't until a small group of them got booked at Zanzibar. For instance, that's when I met Ten City. You know, which is Myron and everybody else breaking down. So that was uh, sort of cool. And then we had, you know. Um, acts that came in from all over the place. Again, every Friday we had to have an act at the club or it wasn't going to survive. So whatever I played, we try to get that act in. And then also the garage would have them on the same weekend. So they would be at the Paradise Garage on Saturdays as well Friday, and we would just intertwine a lot of things, whether it was a major act or a smaller act. So if they had Grace Jones, we would have Grace Jones. you know. So we were like the little, little stepchild. But... Um, in terms of Chicago, man, I don't think I've ever had a section of my library sectioned off like theirs. It was that huge. I mean, even in the club in Zanzibar, if you see some of the pictures, I had a section where it was about maybe 300 of everything that came out from Chicago. So, I, you know, again, as I was playing songs, I'd pull a track from Chicago. And, and so they got a good 40% my program you know and uh we bonded that way and the only time i would really meet those guys was in florida when we had the winter music conference and all of a sudden it was like oh that's you yeah man that's cool so you know we bonded then but it was once a year so um but um love their stuff man love their stuff i mean for me it started with like virgo virgo tracks Virgo tracks I used to play a lot because, you know, Earl Young is my, again, Philly, you know, my favorite drummer, and I try to push those sort of patterns, and Virgo was like the electronic version of a piece of Earl Young. So I used to play that a lot, 
make everything feel that way <laughs> by keeping it underneath. But uh, yeah, love the guys from Chicago. Thanks. You're welcome. More questions, please, back there. Two quick. Two questions. Uh, do you think traditional media, and particularly FM radio, is still as influential as it was when you were working the club scene and the radio scene? And have you ever been to Zanzibar, the physical no. country? No. Oh, wow. Space. Great. I wish. No. No. Um, I believe that radio isn't like when I was on there because of freedom. I believe, you know, I've heard this from a lot of other people at mix shows across the country when I went to seminars in Florida. And they said, man, we don't have it like you, man. You know, we got mix shows, but we got to play with what's ever being programmed. And we only are allowed to play two or three songs that, you know, were not on the playlist. And, you know, you're lucky you got You can play anything you want, you know. So I would assume it's, it's just as tight now. You know, I don't really know of anyone who has the freedom to absolutely play anything they want. I mean, maybe Louie and uh, uh, Kevin does uh, on BLS in New York. But other than that, uh, I don't know anyone else who has that freedom. So I would say, you know, it's not the same as back then. And no, I haven't been to the real Zanzibar. Wish they would invite me. <laughs> It'd be really cool. I see a National Geographic program coming up. Okay. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Thanks so much for being here. That was really You're inspiring <laughs> to hear all that music. Um, I was in Newark, I guess, four months ago. I live in New York, and I was driving around, and there was house music coming out of a barbecue, and I drove past, and it was a bunch of 50- and 60-year-old ladies <laughs> totally giving it up, singing all the lyrics. And, you know... I was maybe expecting it to be 25-year-olds or something, like, but it was a block party full of older people, grandmas, parents, aunties, all dancing to house music. Um, and I feel like Zanzibar and these clubs are talked about as they were so underground, but can this is kind of two parts. One, can you describe what the atmosphere was like at Zanzibar, what kind of people went... Um, you know, the people were staying up till 10 a.m. and then going to work, like, you know, was it, was it druggy? Was it spiritual? There was obviously a lot of well-known artists coming through. Mm -hmm. And then second of all, I, as I understand the house scene in Jersey, I don't want to call it mainstream, but there was a, a ton of people into house music. It wasn't like quite this thing you had to underground discover. House music seems like it was around during the time. So anyway, can you just talk about that? Okay. Um, in terms of who went there, uh, again, I was in my 20s, and um, one of the things that I remember that was sort of shocking to me when I got to New Jersey was uh, how much they were into like dance music or underground music. Um, we used to have these high school parties, believe it or not, on a Sunday. And, you know, this is the time of LL Cool J and all these other, you know, hip-hop artists that were out. And I'd be playing this stuff, you know, for them. And then knock on the door. 
hey, 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 when are you going to play uh, Where Were You When The Lights Come Out? I'm like, what did you ask me for? Ask me for the tramps, you know. Uh, and you uh, say, well, you know, when are you going to play Born This Way? I was like, what do you know about Born This Way? You wasn't even born when I was born this way by Carl Bean, you know, came out. So they were asking me for all these, you know, club songs, you know, and I was like, little peons. And it just was shocking to me that the culture was already there already. And the young, these little kids wanted to hear 50-50. They wanted to hear house songs and hip-hop songs, which didn't happen in, in New York, as far as I'm concerned. It didn't happen in Brooklyn or wherever. So that was uh, inspiring, really, you know, to be able to have the freedom to play 50-50 like that as they were growing up. So it was already instilled, you know, when I got there. Um, I'm trying to remember what the second question was that you said. Oh, I was saying, like, what was the atmosphere at the actual club like? What kind oh, of people Oh, the atmosphere, went? well... How, did, how was the arc of what happened during <clears> the night? This, this, okay. So, basically, you would go into the place at 10 o'clock at night, and, you know, it would be like any other after-hours sort of, uh, after-work sort of situation, and you would have, I guess, commercial people who would be there until around... 1230 when they would open up a gate to the second floor you weren't allowed on the top floor as 1231 o'clock happened and you walked up the stairway you walked into this huge ballroom okay and then those commercial people would probably stay there until a PA or a show happened okay so I'm showing you sort of the evolution so most of the people who were underground would not come in till really around two or three Four in the morning. First, they would tape the radio show, and then after the radio show, they would get ready and come to the club. And there was that transition in my second set where I could play a couple of commercial things, but a little bit of underground things. And then by the third set, the commercial people went home. They've been out partying since 10 o'clock. You know I mean, they had enough. They drank enough. They saw a show. So that's why by the third set, I had to play like real stuff. Like, okay, core stuff now. I couldn't play anything that was on the radio or something like that at that time. So again, um, so it was a mixture, which was really odd. You had people with suits on, and then you had people who had, you know, underground stuff on, you know, and dancing on baby powder and, you know, had different, it was crazy. Um, you had different sections. We had like little bleachers on each side and a stage on another side. And uh, you had little cliques of people and you had the, the dancers, the modern dancers, you know, who were doing their circle dance, as we call it. They were doing their thing. And um, th that's sort of what taught me <clears throat> to try to be diverse all the time within every 15, 20 minutes because I imagine being in the ceiling of the club, okay, if it had a glass ceiling, and looking down at all these different groups of people and saying, okay, now how am I going to make them happy? How am I going to make them happy? So there's like five, six groups of people. I need to play something for each one of them so they wouldn't go home. And that's why I tried to be diverse and do it as quickly as possible. I didn't want to really zone in on one particular one until 7 or 8 in the morning. That's when I had the freedom to stick with one sort of, you know, style of music. Um, but, uh, and again, 
the radio lessons helped me with being able to keep hitting different ones in a certain amount of time. Um, so it, it was a great mixture. Um, I can imagine the second set, or let's say from 12 to 2 or 3 in the morning with suited people with hats on, you know, and then people, you know, with normal underground gear must have been... But there was never any fights. There was never any threats or anything. So, it's, again, it was different for Jersey for me. You wouldn't find that in New York. It was either one way or the other. And um, that's, that's kind of why I, like, I, I liked it. It was, it was unique. And the youth. The youth also was into not-so-radio hits. Sir, I think we can't let you go without mm. picking a last song for us a last uh, like a classic what? last song last song and um, while you do that I guess you would other might questions like to I don't know there's, there's so much me. stuff to play wow you'll be playing tonight as well right that's true <laughs> he's like so, like so, it doesn't matter <laughs> so so we will be getting I'll a lot of that as well but for those who won't be able to hear the last track tomorrow morning yeah um, I'd like you all to Join me in giving thanks working? to Mr. Tony Humphreys. Thank you. Thank you. I'll try again. It's not working. Oh. Another big song of ours. I think I did a mix on this for Warlock back then. It was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, we had it and, the, and 
for the CD. Wow. I forgot when I did this song. <laughs> it's, it's an 80s. It's <laughs> wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. Sounds like we got one more. Um, okay, let's see. Well, let's see. Uh, I'm the wrong one. You want all this? <laughs> yeah. So many of them. God, this is another one. <laughs> All right, here's another, uh, what should I say? Another 11 o'clock in the morning record. <laughs>
I'm going to try to set this up. Um, basically, uh, there was a little discrepancy. I sort of regret now that um, when I decided to leave Zanzibar, um, so, sort of a management sort of issue thing. I don't want to go into detail. And um, basically, the last night I decided to leave, um, the owner was there and he heard me ranting and raving over the mic, which I don't usually speak on the mic. And he said that uh, we could stay as long as we wanted to. So you can imagine from like one the previous night until like about 4.30, 5 o'clock the next day, just kept playing music because I knew it was going to be the last time that I was going to be playing there. And this is the last song that I played. Okay, and this is, you can imagine what happened.
so many tears around that place. Uh, I'm starting to feel it now. <laughs> Just crying, everyone's crying all over the place. Uh, anyway, that's history. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.